This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's a clinical instructor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies of Loyola University, Chicago. Think about the rise in anxiety, depression. Where is all that coming from? I believe it's a lot of incongruencies. And so how do we talk about it? How do we help people? How do we empower people? Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Deborah Watson. She's a clinical instructor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University of Chicago. Her work has extended as far as the Kingdom of Bhutan in the Himalayan mountain range, and her clinical work is rooted in a family systems approach with an overarching feminist lens. Previous to her clinical work and teaching, she was an active community leader. She served for several years on the boards of social service agencies advocating for youth and their families throughout the Collar counties of Chicago. As a counselor, educator, and lifelong learner, she emphasizes growth and development through education with attention to mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Watson earned her B.A. in psychology with a mental health concentration and master's in marriage and family counseling and a doctor of education in counseling education and supervision from Governor State University. Dr. Deborah Watson, Professor Deborah Watson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a clinical instructor. Help my listeners understand, first of all, what role you play here in the Institute for Pastoral Studies. What work do you do as a clinical instructor? As a clinical instructor, I mainly work with the pastoral counseling students. And the clinical piece would be in the supervision class that I'm that I teach. And that oversees our future pastoral counselors that will be working towards licensure and going on to do pastoral counseling work. And when somebody says pastoral counseling, what does that mean as a vocation? What does a pastoral counselor do? So they do all the things that a licensed, once they receive their licensure and take the test, they would do anything a licensed professional counselor would do. And we here in the state of Illinois have a two-tiered system. So they would most likely work towards the LCPC, licensed clinical professional counselor. But with the pastoral counseling from IPS, you have integrated a deep spiritual component that I see as being able to accompany people in a a spiritual sense, kind of integrating that mind, body, and spirit component. And so what sort of students come to the Institute for Pastoral Studies to do this kind of work? Where, where are they coming from? Are they coming directly from college or from a second career? Or? Many of our students, are it's their second career. Recently, I had a student say it's their second mountain. They've really done a lot of things and they wanted, the students didn't say this, but I think they're 
spiritually developed in a way that I can't really describe, but many of them have had very successful careers. And then we have community members, priests, um, sisters from different religious communities. So I think of them, we hear emotional intelligence many times. I think of it as spiritual intelligence. And so the students that come here, they exhibit this kind of spiritual intelligence, and then they come into these classes and they're learning how to do, I guess, clinical counseling. They are. Psychotherapy. um, And for me, I'm guessing, and my sense is, or hunch, is that they are integrating all this knowledge. And then being able to accompany people, really creating that space to be able to be there with people as they explore or integrate components of themselves. Now, a student who is learning to, to do this kind of pastoral counseling work, would they be the kind of would that be the kind of training that would allow them to intervene in in sort of discernment situations where someone who comes to them is trying to decide whether or not they are being called into ministry or whether or not they're being called into some sort of support to ministry or would they actually be equipped to help people with kind of the more i guess what you'd see on TV a kind of breakdown situation a person who's in a real state of crisis like what what level does a person with clinical pastoral counseling intervene in another person's mental life <laughs> the range is huge I think it depends on their extra studies. Basically, in any counseling program, and even here, you would come out, you're, you're ready to be supervised. We do have a two-tiered system. So you're ready to take the licensure exam, and you're ready to handle an array of situations. And so when, when a student who is coming to Institute for Pastoral Studies when they're finished, you say that they are, they're not ready yet to be counselors. They're ready to be sort of mentored as counselors. Well, they are licensed by the state. They're licensed professional counselors. They are ready to go out in the world and work. But as a licensed professional counselor in the state of Illinois, you still, you wouldn't be able to go into your own private practice until you're LCPC. But you're ready to go out in the world and work in counseling, psychotherapeutic setting. Okay. And if I was wanting to go and speak to a clinical pastoral counselor, would I need to find one that was of my denomination? Like if I wanted to get the best possible service for a Catholic, would I need to go and find a Catholic clinical pastoral counselor? Or if I were a Baptist, would I need to go find a Baptist clinical pastoral counselor? (laughs) You may need to, (laughs) but I would say our students are equipped to accompany anyone. That's that's my overarching goal. And And I would say they are ready, but I, there is also something to saying fit with with a person. So I wouldn't dissuade someone if they were very strong on wanting someone in their faith tradition, but I would say our students are ready to accompany. And is a clinical pastoral counselor similar to a chaplain, or is it different from chaplaincy? It's different. Chaplaincy is a completely different track. Okay. They do CPE. Really, I think are all... Anyone coming out of a counseling program would be ready, but for anybody, there's now two more or 3,000 hours of more training, and people find their niches, and it typically many times happens in an internship. 
you're working with a certain population and you become kind of an expert in that. And we do group projects so that you start building great networks because you can't be an expert in every area. But I think here at IPS, um, that spiritual component is invaluable. And when you are working with students, what's your favorite part of that process? What's the moment when you're like, ah, this is why I'm doing this? (laughs) I think when they realize that it's the client is really the expert and that they've created this space for the person to have an aha moment or to come to an awareness, but they realized they created this space. Because I don't think it's about advice giving or problem solving as much as it is about creating these spaces for people to grow and explore. You said something a moment ago I want to come back to. You just said that the client is the expert. Unpack Mm -hmm. that statement for me. What does that mean? So for me, it means that as counselors in training or counselors, you have a lot of knowledge and you are an expert in your area, whatever that may be beyond just a general counseling degree. But think about, and when I say client is the expert, there are so many variables. They really know what's best for their life. That's one of my founding beliefs. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the things that a clinical pastoral counselor would be doing would be a type of listening that would help them to shepherd the person who they're helping to find their own answers that are congruent with their spiritual tradition and that are grounded in the kind of moral community that they come from. That's that's my overarching belief and goal. Well, I think that that'll be reassuring to many of my listeners who may be worried that sometimes this kind of counseling can give people bad advice. It sounds like that is really not the intention of this kind of work. Not at all. And I, I think I would want to highlight that, yes, we have tools we can give people, you know, and to build that trust, you may give some tools for maybe combating depression or tools for grief or tools for organization. So, you know, unlike, and I'm speaking generally here, if someone's coming in in crisis, that is not, that's a different type of beginning. (laughs) But generally speaking, when someone's coming in, you're building trust, you're, you are giving tools, you do have a lot of knowledge and expertise But really, the client is the expert in their life. That's my belief. And that's what you're communicating in the classroom to the students as well. Mm -hmm. Is is that ever a point where where a student would push back against that and say, no, no, I, it's, I feel like it's my job to really like tell them what they need to do. Sometimes. <laughs> how, do you, not... <laughs> how do you handle that when that comes up? Oh gosh, what do I, well, sometimes my first approach is maybe the next class we'll all get together and I'll have students reflect on in their darp- deepest, darkest moments. What was most helpful for them? And then we'll talk about that. And most of the time they don't come and say, well, it's when so-and-so came right up to me in my deepest, darkest hour and tell me exactly what I should be doing. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's a clinical instructor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're talking about her work teaching students how to become clinical pastoral counselors. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's clinical instructor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies in Loyola University of Chicago, where she helps to teach students who are studying to become pastoral counselors. Dr. Watson, I, I know a little bit about your background and what brought you to your work here at the Institute for Pastoral Studies, but for my listeners, why don't we explore that a little bit? What was your journey in terms of your vocation? We may talk about your faith a little bit more later in the conversation, but your your journey in terms of vocation that brought you to be teaching here at IPS. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. It's been a long journey, and as I reflect on my life, I am very amazed at how all the different things brought me to this, all the different things that I've done that I never knew there was a connection. But as a a young child, I was nine and my grandmother died and my family fell apart um, in my eyes for a moment. My parents were divorced and I, um, I had a real strong spiritual connection to my grandmother, but I never spoke about it. And I always wanted to do social work because I felt that I slipped through the cracks. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and first of all, I'm sorry for your grandmother's passing, mm-hmm. and, but you had a strong connection to her. And mm-hmm. then when, when, the, when she passed, you felt a ripple in the family, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And then you're, what you just said, that you fell through the cracks. Help me understand mm-hmm. what that means. I think, well, luckily, and again, I think this is what happened with my spiritual formation. I always felt very loved, but there was so much chaos in my family that I felt I didn't reach certain potentials. And I think being a child of divorce in the 70s was quite a strong mm, stereotype. I mean... I think it's interesting that I'm in family therapy and I think children should be in the room with most, with a lot of situations, not even most, I wouldn't say. But I knew what was going on in my house and in different places. And um, I knew what teachers were saying, oh, this is, this is a troubled family. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, what if my family received some services or some help or even just guidance. It wasn't anything major, but what if we had some different kinds of support services? And you say that as a child of nine or 10, you were aware of what was going on Mm -hmm. in the household. Were the other adults aware of your awareness or did they act as if everything was fine around you? Um, I think they wanted to protect me. 
Mm-hmm. I think they went. And I think the many of the adults were going through all their own things. Mm-hmm. Loss, grief, all different types of other things that were happening. Yes. L- let me ask a follow-on question. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking as a professional, mm-hmm. a person who has studied this, mm-hmm. is that the best approach to protect a child and to, and to sort of act as if everything is fine, even though the child may be very aware of, the, of what's going on in a family dynamic? I guess I'm asking, what is the better approach? So generally speaking, I believe developmentally appropriate conversations because children know what's happening. Maybe not all the details. And I'm not talking about adult issues like infidelity and all those types of details. I'm not talking about that. But we have some communication problems. We have some things we need to work on. We we have some, again, developmentally appropriate ways to approach different situations that are occurring. And how do we address the variances of power in the families? How do we look at the areas between the couple, the areas of empowerment and disempowerment? How do we talk to our children in a developmentally appropriate way? Um, What kinds of supports are they getting? Do we just veil everything in secrecy? Or do we talk about these things, recognize where we may need some help? And so for a a child who is in that situation, Mm -hmm. is it damaging to them for them to have a a sense of this is the reality that I see and then to have all the adults around them say, oh, no, no, that's not that's not true, and and to try and hide it. Well, that would be my guess. Okay, and okay. that's what they, I mean. Think about all the incongruences. Think about the rise in anxiety, depression. Where is all that coming from? I believe it's a lot of incongruencies, and so how do we talk about it? How do we help people? How do we empower people? And I'm not saying empower is a power over, but how do we develop intrinsic? motivation or how do we protect the young people and so for the adults who are in that situation Mm -hmm. they may be scared to death to acknowledge even to themselves let alone to the child the reality of what's going on Mm -hmm. and so am i hearing correctly that a a social worker or a pastoral counselor this would be the type of role that they would Mm -hmm. play to help to give that entire family the safety to begin to communicate about these things. And what you said before was the support. Is this what you mm-hmm. mean by the word support that you wish that you had had when you were a child? Mm-hmm. Instead of being told to be quiet, you mm. know, and that's a common theme that I grew up with, be seen but not heard. So your vocation comes from a real sense of personal calling, but also from your personal history. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? I would say that's very fair. Yeah. I imagine that sometimes those old demons may come up in your clinical work. How, mm-hmm. do, you, how do you help to set the boundaries in those situations? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions, and those are something we talk about all the time, boundaries, self-care, super, your own counseling, your own personal development. Yeah, very important and and a must. And that's when I talked earlier about the two-tiered approach. That's why you do two years of clinical, two or three years of clinical work supervised. 
and you continually consult. You continually, I think it's so important for students to network and form groups or consulting groups and get together. And um, Is that just so that you have people there that can help you to spot the things that may be in your blind spots? That's part of it. That's also, you can't be the expert in everything. So we all have our niches, you know, these areas where... I want to consult with someone that's done a little more work or research in this area. Oh, and all the exciting areas, neurocounseling, um, all the... Another thing that's really propelled my work is when we, like, we diagnose. Well, do we even consider all the trauma that people have gone through, but we're giving all these diagnoses? It makes no sense to me. And so when you say all the trauma, help me understand what you mean by that. What, what sort of trauma are we talking about uh, that you would encounter as a, as a clinical pastoral counselor or as a person in your field? Um, well, sexual trauma. Oh. All different types of trauma. Violence. Um, domestic violence. I mean, the numbers are staggering to me. Yeah. And so... It's interesting to me, and it may be interesting to my listeners, to realize that that would be the kind of thing that a a person who is coming from a spiritual counseling position would encounter and would need to deal with. Mm -hmm. But now that you say it, it makes perfect sense, because Mm -hmm. we don't live our lives in boxes, do we? No, we don't. Yeah, and and we may be in a space where we're trying to be spiritual, but sometimes those other things from our life, our life will overlap into that space, Mm -hmm. won't they? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And when you look at, well, domestic violence, for instance, or interpartner violence, as it's IPV is the acronym that is commonly used now, it knows no bounds. It could be anywhere. So those are things, those, that's those kinds of traumas. To name one, that's one. And so if I was having this conversation with a secular clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. I think because of the media and because of, you know, my own experiences, I would have a sense of kind of the best and worst of what that particular person had encountered. I'm fascinated by what it is that a person who does this kind of clinical work with the addition of God talk mm-hmm. would encounter. And let, let's go to some of the extremes. So does a, would a clinical pastoral counselor ever deal with someone who thought or who others thought was demon-possessed, for example? Mm. Or is that beyond the pale of what we're talking about? I don't think it's beyond. But I think, well, I think for something like that, you would need to consult. Yeah. And... <laughs> you might say, this is outside my particular area of expertise. Yeah. But that wouldn't mean you wouldn't partner with people and continue to accompany while you're looking for for more resources and experts and in me, those areas. Let me ask a follow-on question. Mm-hmm. So part of what your job is as a person who is trained in clinical pastoral counseling is to listen intently and carefully to what the worldview is of the person who's coming to you. Absolutely. And so if a person is coming to you with a community or a personal spirituality for whom demonic possession or demonic presence is an important part of the way that they think about the world, you wouldn't want to just dismiss that. You'd take that seriously. Correct. Okay. Even if you yourself might not personally hold that position, you would want to find a way to have empathy for that person's position. 
That would be my position okay. for sure. So for the critic who might say, well, you're just aiding someone's illusion mm-hmm. at that moment, how would you respond to that criticism? No, I would say, why wouldn't we meet that person where they are? Why why would I spend all my time fighting that person? How hard is it to change someone's belief? I mean, you need to meet people where they are. I that's I I really feel that in my life and my practice, that's really the most important thing for me. And I'm not talking in a life-threatening crisis. I'm saying, generally speaking, the person's not a danger to themselves or someone else, that you meet the person where they are. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's a clinical instructor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's a clinical instructor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies of Loyola University, Chicago. She works with students to help them become licensed clinical pastoral counselors in the state of Illinois. So in the last segment, we talked a little bit about your personal history and the journey that brought you to your work as a clinical pastoral counselor. If you're willing, I would love to hear a little bit about your faith journey as well. Did you grow up as a person of faith? And if so, what was your faith background? Oh, I grew up a Catholic. Okay. And so you not only were born and raised in the Catholic Church, but you entered the sacramental traditions of the Catholic Church. You were baptized, you were confirmed, you had First Communion, those sorts of things? Yes. Okay. But when my grandmother died and my parents were divorced, that all stopped. And what did that stop look like? Did, was it was it just a dead end of, of faith involvement at all, or did it mean a veer and a detour into some other type of faith tradition? For me, it meant I just did my own my own spiritual journey. And like I said, I it's so interesting to me as we talk about um, spirituality and client is the expert. I definitely had my own spirituality. I felt my grandmother was with me from for most of my young adult life. And so with you as a as a as a spirit like guiding and um honestly like a guardian angel. Okay. And I didn't talk about it because it would, I feel it would have been pathologized. Mm. So that that there was something wrong with you mm-hmm. for having this connection to your grandmother. Correct. What a world we live in, where <laughs> where the loss of a loved one and the and the desire to have an attachment to a loved one even after they're gone is seen as some kind of of deficiency or sickness. Mm-hmm. And what what does that say about the narratives that we tell ourselves mm-hmm. from day to day? Right. And so I think. With the abrupt and and the way that I saw my mom hurt by the church when she was divorced in in the seventies, so I kind of had my spiritualness and and my spiritual journey is if closely connected to my husband, who has an unshakable faith and love for the Catholic Church, which so then it 
morphed into more because I started learning so much more about the traditions and and the history from through his eyes. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you were born Catholic and mm-hmm. you were confirmed to some extent in the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, but then with the with the sort of shattering of your family mm-hmm. and the the death of your grandmother around the age of 9, mm-hmm. You kind of were on your own path. I was. Until young adulthood when you met your husband. Right. And then you say that his strong faith helped you to relearn and re-engage with your Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's been quite an up and down journey. Then I I pull towards and then I pull away. I pull towards. Um, And all the while, his has just been steadfast. And so those moments when you feel a disconnection with the church are times when you see representatives of the church or the church itself not acting in a way that you see to be Christ-like and loving? Yes. Okay. And so when you feel those pull-aways, do you get pulled away to a different type of spiritual expression, or do you just pull away to solitude? So it's so interesting, because I just thought about this now. I go back to that place that I went to in my younger days. Let me ask you a strange question. Where do you feel your grandmother's presence more now, in the Catholic Church or in that solitary place? Oh, gosh. Well, I would, my first response would be in that solitary space, but just recently I went back to the church that I used to go to with her when I was little. And what did that feel like? Oh, it was awesome. And th- and that's why I think that's my my love of the church because it is it provides a structure for me when I'm vulnerable mm-hmm. or not as strong. And so I think how wonderful that I still have a place I can go to. And it's a you mean going to that physical yes. space that you used to worship in. Yes. And so your your connection with your husband helped you to have a kind of a spiritual connection to the church, but going back to that physical location helped you to have a reconnection to your grandmother's mm-hmm. understanding of the faith or yes. okay. Well, and and just I don't want to it's almost like wow, to have a home. You know, that's really important to me. Um, and it's something I've always strived to create. Well, I just put the connection together, you know, when I'm working with people, I want to create a space. And I think those physical spaces are important to have where you can feel safe. And for me, I feel very, very fortunate, blessed that I have a Catholic church that I can call home. It's been a wonderful place for me at most times. And so having that place that you can call home and having a a place of refuge and safety, I can easily see how having availed yourself of that at various points in your life, you would want as part of your work and vocation to give that to other people. I would. But just so I love calling myself a family counselor. I love family theories. I love systems theories. But I do want to recognize the fact, and this is where I still continue to find tension or the areas I grapple is just like a family can be the most loving and safe space, it can also be one of the most violent spaces. And I think for some people that's happened in our churches too. And so I don't want to not recognize that. And how do we help all people 
with their experiences and beliefs and that sort of thing. And so in terms of thinking about your own spiritual journey, has it always been grounded in the Catholic Church or has there been any other faith tradition that has been a resource or a touchstone for you along the way? Well, I've always, always read about Buddhism. I love it and it helps me to understand my faith better. How do you mean? Well, I don't know. I think maybe my faith, my Catholic formation was too rote or rigid or I don't know. And so when I go to these new places of prayer or worship and I'm finding them so energizing and loving, for instance, with Buddhism, I spent four months in a a Buddhist country that I loved. I loved my time there. But I saw so many of the same, the underpinnings, the foundations are so similar. Non-attachment. But to me, those are things that we, forgiveness, um, rebirth, those are all things that we have in our, in my, I have that. I just am now looking at it in a broader, richer, more meaningful kind of way, deeper. Let me make sure that I'm tracking with what you're saying. So even though you have remained a Catholic throughout, you took time, and I think you said you mentioned four months to go to a Buddhist country. First of all, which country was this? Bhutan. Bhutan. And in Bhutan, you had a a sense that there was a similarity between the way that uh, the Buddhists were kind of living their faith and some of the touchstones in their faith, and that helped you to reconnect with some of the touchstones in your own Catholicism. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, or, or in Christianity mm-hmm. and some of the um, misunderstandings I had of both, you know, and and I think any <laughs> – I don't want to upset anyone, but I there's imperfections everywhere. <laughs> I, and so I like to go back to my God is love and – well, I, I have a friend that teaches at Catholic Theological Union, Scott Alexander, and he he's a he's a Roman Catholic, but he has taught for many years the subject of Islam and kind of Muslim studies. And one of the things that he said to me at one point was that watching Muslims pray many times a day helped to reconnect him to the own, to his own prayer traditions within Catholicism, and he prays more and more fervently now as a result of that interaction. Is that similar to what yes. you're saying? I would say so. So I have prayer wheels in my home, and I don't look at them as Buddhist necessarily, mm-hmm. even though it brings me back to those Himalayan mountains. But I look at them as prayers being spun to the world of from my God. If that Sure. And so do you ever find, as you say this, that you get pushback from your fellow Catholics or from fellow Christians, or is this is this something that you haven't encountered much friction around? Well, <laughs> I had a a person come to my home and was pretty agitated. Really? But yeah. They just they I forget what word they used, but um, I said, "Well, I, I believe in one God for the world," mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Let me make sure that I understand. So a, a a guest in your home or just a person, a stranger off the street came in and decided well, that they Well, it were was gonna... a person who has done work on my home for many years and 
was uncomfortable that I had different um, symbols from different religions and actually felt comfortable enough to talk to me about it. That must have been a fascinating conversation. It was great. I I was happy. I don't know if that person was necessarily happy when they were leaving, but 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 what I heard, what I hear from that is that even though the other person had discomfort, you were comfortable enough to have hospitality to their discomfort and to hear them out. You didn't throw this person out of oh, your house. Oh no, my goodness! But no. but at the end of the day, their discomfort was not enough to make you uncomfortable with your comfort. Oh no! Yeah. No, and that's where I'm at even. That's just where I'm at. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I suspect that, that some people are uncomfortable with um, some of my, uh, I'm, for lack of a better word, antics, travels, explorations. And I think some people that have known me a long time are sometimes are worried, is she going to change? Is she going to leave the Catholic Church? Nope. <laughs> I'm here to stay now. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's clinical instructor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's clinical instructor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We've been discussing her journey of faith and her journey in life that has brought her to teach students at the Institute for Pastoral Studies how to become clinical pastoral counselors. Is counseling radically different in a non-Western environment? Well, in Bhutan, there wasn't any counseling to speak of. They had school counselors that came in with the school system to be, and basically (laughs) there wasn't much of a mental health. They had two psychiatrists at the time I was there and that was their system. So NBCC is an American organization, a United States organization. And so it looks very Western. I think the biggest difference is there. I was the only person. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have people to, other than the psychiatrist or the psychiatric nurses. They don't have the confidentiality laws. They don't have the domestic violence laws. It's moving towards that, but they didn't have any of those resources. So, to be there and to be able to create that moment of safe space for that moment was the best 
I had to give. Wow. So there wasn't even the infrastructure that we might take for granted. Correct. Wow. And did what did you learn from that? It really helped me because guess what? You might not get to see someone another time. So, you know, and so for me, what I walked away with is being able to create that space and really understand what I could do at that moment to be the most helpful to that person. So one of my favorite questions is always, if I were to be helpful to you at this time, what would that look like? And that, again, that speaks right back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation of this person across the room from you that is talking to you is the expert about their own experience. Mm -hmm. And so you trying to imagine or impose what you think will be best for them will not take the place of them actually telling you in as many words as they need to what they think would be best for them at that moment. I imagine that there are times when it's not advised to listen to a person who is telling you what is best for them. But in most cases, I would imagine that a person saying, this is what is best for me right now, is like the golden ticket, isn't it? That is my, that is my belief. How can I tell them, in knowing them for 15 minutes, yeah. what would be best for them? I have some tools. I can, you know, I can give you the tools I have for what you may want or I may not. How can I best serve you in this time and place? As you have traveled the world, I imagine that you have gotten a chance to see your own experience now from multiple vantage points. Mm-hmm. And as you have looked at your work and your life from these distant vistas, are there things that, that frustrate you? Mm-hmm. In, in the midst of, of this kind of self-reflection. <laughs> It'll go back to that. I guess that's probably why that's my vein that you keep hearing or the theme is, and I, th- I was guilty of this in my younger days, going in there and thinking you can just change up everything quickly. We need a lot of time. Like we need to take the time to build trust, to build connection, to build communities I could go on, I be, but we need to take that time. There's not going to be a quick fix. There's not going to be one pill. There's not going to be one thing that we can do. I mean, I think, and that does, I don't want to take away from, yes, these small things, I do believe they ripple. So frustrated, I think when I see people going into places and trying to be the know-it-all, that really frustrates me. So how do you go in and be a guest? And so I use the analogy, when I do travel abroad, I want to be a guest there. I don't want to go in there. and Now, it's different if they ask me, what are some tools? What do you think we could do when we dialogue about it? Yeah, I think that's wonderful to go in somewhere and just, like, put the hammer down. You know, this is the way it should be. Yeah, we do have a lot of research. We do have a lot of information on what's been helpful in these certain situations. How can we adapt it? Or do you think it could be helpful for you? And what do you do at moments of frustration to keep yourself hopeful? Or what is it that keeps you hopeful in your work? I actually think the love that people bring. And I really see it all around me most days. So that keeps me and and the great love and passion of the people before us 
and the people that will come after us. I think it's there. I feel it. That keeps me hopeful. I, I do. I still, even after all these years, I believe there's more good than bad. I just do. And as you, as you look forward now from, you know, you, you've been at the Institute for Pastoral Studies for a couple of years now, and so you're beginning to have students that are coming through the program and they're beginning to go out into the world. Mm-hmm. What is your hope for those students as they begin their journey in, mm-hmm. in becoming clinical pastoral counselors? Uh, that every day they continue to work on their self and other. I think it's a balance, and I think it's, I think you need an, it's an intentional work every day. And so, and then I think in this, off the top of my head, this consumer society, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to balance that, to take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. And just as a way of ending, what are some good ways that our listeners who may be hearing this for the first time, what's one or two simple things that they can be doing to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and to exercise self-care? I think creating that space in their own lives for what brings them peace. I love deep breathing. I I just love – I and actually – Taking time out for yourself. I think for a while, whatever brings you peace and comfort. Well, Deborah Watson, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work, but also for trusting me and my listeners with some of your personal history. I just want to acknowledge that that, that in and of itself is a, is a great kindness to us. And thank you for that and for your time today. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Dr. Deborah Watson. She's clinical instructor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies of Loyola University of Chicago. Her clinical work is rooted in a family systems approach with an overarching feminist lens. She has a BA in psychology with a mental health concentration, a master of arts in marriage and family counseling, and a doctor of education in counseling education and supervision from Governor's State University. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.